the fact that our industry is recovering overall, notwithstanding pockets where things are down, means that we're going to see a, perhaps a stronger bounce back than we would have hoped certainly six months ago. We've also seen that our industry is far less discretionary than people perhaps anticipated. People were desperate to get out and have a beer and, and go out for a meal. And I think we're going to see that certainly through into 2021 and beyond. At the moment on Dirty Linen, we are looking to the future. The near future, really, we're looking to a post-JobKeeper landscape. JobKeeper is finishing up at the end of March and it's going to change a lot of things for a lot of people in the hospitality industry. I wanted to chat to someone who would give us a really good overview of the situation. Uh, look nationally, look at the city, look at the suburbs and just see how things are tracking and how things might go in the future. So we are uh, having a return visitor to Dirty Linen. I am super happy to welcome back to the mic, Paul Watterson. He is the Managing Director and CEO of Oz Venue Co, which owns 150, 70 something, he can tell us, pubs around the country. Welcome, Paul. Great to have you back. Thanks, Danny. Thanks so much for having me. We're up to 161 now. 161. Amazing. Well, I actually had a beer in one of your venues the other night and, um, yeah, uh, just uh, slaked the thirst at um, Beer Deluxe at Federation Square when I had a, a couple of hours to kill. And, I mean, that's a pretty good place to contemplate the state of things because it's in the centre of Melbourne. The city is still pretty quiet, although there are definitely signs of, you know, life and excitement. Um, and it's actually, you know, at the other end of the city that I actually ran into you. And it's funny in this COVID age, it's like there's people that uh, you, you are in touch with a lot, but you never actually see them. So I saw you at the World's Longest Lunch, which gave an amazing impression of where uh, Melbourne hospitality and events are at. So, yeah, I'd just love to get a little bit of an overview from you about where you think where you think things are. Mm. Yeah, thanks. It's been quite interesting in terms of watching the recovery in across the different states because we have pubs in every state except for Tasmania, and there's no question that Victorian recovery is lagging the other states, albeit we are seeing good improvement week on week. So even if I look back to the middle of February, our sales um, in the CBD in Melbourne were about 47% down on what they were at the same time last year. But each week um, that's been improving to the point last week our sales in the CBD we're about 16% down on our numbers in 2019 because we've sort of cycled over that COVID-interrupted period of 2020. We're back to sort of comparing it against 2019. Um, but across Victoria generally, we our sales were 6% down on the same period last year. And interestingly, every other state except for Victoria, the sales were actually up on that same period last year, which has just been an amazing recovery. That is, yeah, that is really incredible. And you guys are, are investing in new venues, um, doing refits around the place. So I guess you're definitely seeing cause for optimism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We were fortunate in that we had the capital to spend in terms of renovating. And every time we spend money renovating what was previously tired pubs, we do get a great return. And 
And we really want to focus on reinvigorating some of those fallen stars and old venues. One that we're working on at the moment is the Sarah Sands at the start of Sydney Road in Brunswick there. We're looking to open that in May and June with a brand new refit because it's really part of Melbourne's heritage, isn't it? We've got these brilliant old buildings and um, getting them back to their glory days is a real passion of ours. Well, the Sarah Sands is a, like an old band pub from way back and I know it's one of those places that if the walls could talk and if those walls could talk, they might have a few things to say about me. So I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to go in and put my ear to the wall and see, if, see what they can remember. I'll have to see if I can dig up some old footage, Danny, just to uh, <laughs> keep it on file. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the, the world's longest lunch just for a minute because it was an incredible, I guess, a marker of of a recovery. You know, when the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival was cancelled a year ago, for me that was a real, you know, that was that was devastating. Uh, it's always something that I look forward to and get involved in. Um, and it really was a signal to me that things were really not normal. Um, to be back in Treasury Gardens uh, last Friday, 1,800 people sitting down for lunch. I mean, how was the feeling? Yeah, it wasn't amazing. I mean, it's a real credit to Anthea Lucas, who's the CEO of the Food and Wine Festival, just pulling that together. Uh, and, and it's similar feelings to yourself in that this time last year we were looking at the comedy festival not going ahead and the food and wine festival going ahead. And I think it was a real threshold moment. And as you say, I, I think I saw five or six people who I'd met on Zoom in the last six months who I actually hadn't ever met face-to-face. And I think if there's one positive of this shutdown, it's the the fact that we've built a real network in Melbourne hospitality now and, and we're a lot closer and more um, aligned than perhaps we were 12 months ago. Mm, interesting. So you've talked about, you know, the the sales that you've got through the venue. So that makes me think that is JobKeeper still part of your picture at the moment? Yeah, we're still receiving JobKeeper uh, for all our venues except our Queensland venues that use a different employing entity. I think for us it was a really brilliant initiative and it was very much needed by the industry during the shutdown and even more so by the staff in that the our JobKeeper went straight to the staff. And what it enabled us to do was support the staff and maintain profitability while our capacity was hampered. Uh, what it also enabled us to do was use what money we had to support the people who weren't eligible for JobKeeper, like visa workers and like things like cooking meals. I, ended, I think we ended up with a million meals that we served our staff around Australia during the shutdown. Um, so it was really amazingly needed during the time. Uh, for Australian Venue Co, though, it's sort of done its job and I think it's time for us to to move forward without it. So I guess, you know, obviously everyone's known for a while when it's going to end and there's been time to plan, perhaps not, you know, for a lot of businesses it won't be enough time and they're still going to really feel that lack of support for their businesses. But what kind of, I mean, how are you feeling like you're going to track out of this period of JobKeeper? Yeah, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for people in the tourism and aviation industry because clearly they're still being very significantly impacted in things like hotels. Um, for our business, though, where we have the benefit of the diversification of the types of businesses we have, we still do have quite a number of venues that are capacity 
constrained. And if you look at some of our pubs along Fitzroy, like the Perseverance and the Provincial, our capacity there is still 40% of what our ordinary capacity would be. Um, We think overall across our portfolios, our capacity is at about 80%. And I think what we will be looking for from state governments in the coming months is relaxations on that one in two square metre capacity restriction because, and it's a bit challenging because every state at the moment has that one in two square metres. So we do need someone to move first in order to help us build that capacity given we've had a plenty of time now to get ready for increased capacity. We've got our contact tracing in place. We've got our sanitisation systems and processes in place. And over time, our industry has been able to show that um, other than you know a few well-documented outbreaks, particularly in Sydney, the restaurant, pubs and cafe industry hasn't been a source of transmission and have been able to manage this pretty safely. Yeah, I mean, can you see any reason for density restrictions at the moment? Oh, personally, I, I can't. Personally, I would like to go back to what is our licence capacity, given our track record of, of managing very well and adapting to the new way of operating, there's no doubt that the density limits are causing an issue and, it, and it's a bit arbitrary in in some ways. So if you look at dance floors, having 50 per people on a dance floor, I, I just don't really understand the rationale of why 50 is safe but 51 isn't. And I know you have to draw a line somewhere, uh, but equally with no community transmission of COVID, Um, in the current environment, I can't see why we can't go back to our original operating environment. And having said that, we're all very flexible now. We've had in our business seven short, sharp lockdowns across different states. And so we know we can manage those. So, you know, we're not suggesting we open if there does in fact end up being community transmission, but we know we can cope through those short, sharp lockdowns as well. Mm, I mean, I honestly... I think one thing we've learnt in the last year or something that I've taken from the last year is that the only safe level of COVID in the community is zero, like zero community transmission is the safe level. And when we have zero community transmission, I struggle to see why we need density limits in venues. Um, yeah, I just, I just don't really get it. Oh, it's certainly a handbrake on the system. And I, and I think the other thing is, you do have things like um, sewage monitoring now where you can see even um, people who may have had COVID. And so you know um, from those levels where you need to be even more cautious. So you can even understand a situation whereby there's um, traces in the sewage in certain locations and we had to have density levels for call it weeks until those um, had disappeared. But I, but I agree with you in the absence of of that and assuming there's no community transmission, we should be able to go back to normal. Yeah, and I, I, re- I do agree with you that, you know, the, the contact tracing is so important and something you've got obviously across, you know, venues nationally. You're, do you use the, I know in New South Wales you met, you have to use the state one, but you guys have a relationship with Mr Yum as well, don't you? Yeah, we do. We've, we've gone back to the state-based contact tracing in every state. Okay. Um, because I think that's the safest way to know that the department have access to everything the second that they need it in whatever state it is. Um, having said that, though, I understand Mr Yum will be fully integrated with the state government's 
um, tracing and tracking system by next week. So if you do enter your details within Mr Yum, it would feed straight through the into the government system in any case. Okay. I mean, I have to say that, you know, I've been in New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria, and I just love it when venues use the state um, the state contact tracing systems. Like it's so simple. And it, I think you do feel better as a consumer not having your details entered into a million different apps. Um, so, yeah. I think that's fair. And I think that was the rationale for reverting back to the state-based system in every state. That's a mm. good call. So... We've talked a little bit about the differences between states. One of the big differences in businesses and the way they're tracking out of COVID is whether they're in the CBD or suburbs. What kinds of things are you noticing in that regard? Oh, we're still very much seeing the the suburbs outperforming compared to the CBDs. Um, But equally, each week that tends to change in that the CBDs go up and the suburbs are going down a little bit. I think a couple of other things that we've really seen um, is people booking. So traditionally everyone just walks into the pub and has a beer, but we're just seeing enormous volumes of people booking now to come in and have a drink or have a meal. So that's been probably something that we didn't anticipate, to be honest, and something that we've had to ramp up for. Um, I think the other thing that we're seeing is just changes in staff mix and, and working through models of how we can... Um, perhaps change our mix of staff in order to uh, manage through periods whereby you you don't have access to those international people who are coming in and working in our industry. Mm. Well, tell me more about that. What kinds of, like, what kinds of restructures are you doing? Yeah, well, we've we've developed quite a number of programs to take novices into our industry. And we call it a bamboo program because people, bamboo starts off slow but becomes very strong very quickly. So we've got <laughs> quite, in, yeah, that was a good one by the HR team coming up with that. Um, but what we've come, what we've done is a two-day paid program whereby people new to the industry come in and get basic training on how to work in the venues and then we're deploying them to the venues with a buddy. I think part of the, um, we've, we've been very fortunate to have Mr Yum as well because we're able to segment our workforce a little bit to ensure that those really experienced bartenders are doing the bulk of the work behind the bar and perhaps less experienced but enthusiastic teams learning how to um, learning how to join the hospitality industry are doing the movement from the food pass and the drinks pass to the patrons who are seated. So it's about creating more specialist roles within a front of house system and program, and it's it's worked amazingly well. and And I think what we hope is by bringing all these young people in the industry. Um, it'll help seed new people across, obviously, other non-AVC venues as well. And often we're finding people coming in, they're starting uni, they're with us for three, four years, and and hopefully uh, over time they remember that time fondly as they go on to become vets or investment bankers and doctors if they don't decide to stay within the hospitality industry. That's, I mean, that's so interesting and it's really crucial that, you know, young Australians see it as a viable proposition. But how do you attract them? Like, yes, they get the training and they get the they get that sort of soft entry into the industry, but how do you get them to think about it in the first place? Uh, Danny, it's been, we've been overwhelmed with people wanting to join. 
when they haven't had experience. And if you look at things like Melbourne Bartender Exchange, you often see people advertising for people with two or three years' experience and they're just not out there. So as an industry, we need to invest in training and developing these young people coming through. But if you put up an ad and offer a training program, you're going to be inundated by people wanting to um, come in and and do a part-time job. And I think this narrative about people not wanting to work because of hired job seeker and job keeper is a real misnomer for me. I think we're seeing people passionate, wanting to enter the industry. Now, having said that, back of house and the kitchens are obviously a lot harder, which is why we're really doubling down on things like our apprenticeship programs. Okay. And you also um, had like sign-on bonuses at one point, didn't you? Can yeah, you tell we us did. about that? Yeah, so we've offered sign-on bonuses for um, to attract those inexperienced people and it was an interesting idea at the time. To be honest, um, it probably hasn't been a factor in, in the number of applications that we've had in that we're getting as many applications for those novice programs now as we were when we were offering things like sign-on bonuses. So I think you've just got more people prepared to join you when you've got a supportive program and training program. And that's not to say small pubs and restaurants can't do the same. It's just about um, buddying up. And I think um, the other um, challenge, I think, for smaller businesses is taking advantage of all these government schemes like JobMaker and the apprenticeship program because there's great funding out there to support these people into the industry. Interesting, because, I mean, you're really painting a different picture than what a lot of people um, are doing in terms of, you know, being able to attract keen people. I mean, do you even find that in, in um, you know, outer urban areas, and I don't know if you guys, do you have any country pubs, like in the regions, is it, is it also possible to attract um, those people that really do want to work? Yeah, very much so. We've got a, opened a new pub in Yarrawonga this week and we're able to attract young people within that area. I think it's some of those um, country areas are a little bit tougher in that you've got this movement. I think you've still got this movement of people into the city to start university. So um, it's a little bit tougher, but it's certainly not insurmountable if you really apply um, hard on these employment programs and are willing to train people up. And thinking about the back of house, which is more challenging, I guess you sort of do need more skilled people and perhaps technology can't play as big a role in in changing the roles that are needed. Well, have you had to make other changes or, you know, are people thinking about menu changes or um, buying in more product? You know, have you have, has there been pressure in that regard? Uh, yeah, we certainly looked as we opened um, with relatively limited menus, but we're very much back to normal menus and produce at the moment. There's no doubt it's challenging in the kitchen, but once again, it's about segmenting the workforce to make sure your most experienced people are doing the high-end, most valued task and then providing um, much more support in or novices in to do things like um, the dishy work and and other work to make sure that your high-end people are once firstly, not working too many hours, and secondly, have got arms and legs and support around them, even if they can't get the experience. So we've really thought hard about what is the kitchen model going forward in a workforce of shortage and how can you segment the workforce to get the best out of your kitchen? 
And where do you see the place of internationals? I mean, I know that you guys supported your people through um, the lockdowns um, and that you'd say, you know, you've seen them as a very important part of your businesses. Where do you think that's going? Uh, yeah, it, we had 900 visa workers at the start of the pandemic. I think we've got about 500 now. Uh, I, we're fighting very hard through the various um, industry bodies um, to be able to get international people back into the country, um, if not later this year than early next year, because we think we really need to give these people a pathway to settle permanently within Australia. They're a really critical part of the workforce. They, they offer diversity of, of backgrounds and of uh, cuisine. And I think as an industry, we really need to get behind the push to provide a pathway to permanent residency and citizenship for international people coming into the country who are prepared to work in kitchens. So that's a real area of focus for us at the moment. So do you mean beyond the sponsored chef program, some other kinds of, of visa statuses that people, yeah, that do offer that pathway? Yeah, well, I think part of the challenge with the chef and the cook programs is many of those pathways don't offer the opportunity for permanency within Australia. So they offer the opportunity to come in for two or four years, but at the end of that two or four years, they, they can't get permanency. And it's a really challenge to ask someone to pick up their life, move to a new country, build their networks within that country, and then have to go after two or four years. Yeah, I mean, it is so, it, it, those internationals have been put in such a difficult situation. I mean, when, as you're speaking, what comes to mind is someone I was speaking to recently, someone who was at, uh, Red Spice Road um, that I've been, you know, following the story of those internationals who have been harshly done by and he was talking about, you know, he's here and he's sponsored but you don't even know if you can buy a TV. It's just that real, you know, you're investing a lot in being here and, and the business is investing a lot in you being here as well but it is just, um, yeah, you just don't feel like you can settle properly and I suppose commit properly and I guess there are benefits on both sides when you are able to make that, that greater commitment. Oh, I think uncertainty is just... Uh, absolutely needs to be resolved because why would you move, set up family, create a life in a new country if it's only for a number of years? And it's just not fair and it's not the right way to treat these people who are really investing in Australia. And I think, it's, yeah, it's really interesting because, I mean, we've all had a taste of uncertainty over the last year, even if, you know, for some of us it's been the first time that we've really had our lives, you know, really transformed without our, you know, without our bidding. Um, so perhaps there is room for a bit more empathy, um, yeah, when we think about the, the position that a lot of these people are put in. I think so, yeah. I mean, some of the stories that you hear, particularly through your podcast, have just been horrific and it's really time for empathy, compassion and, and embracing these people who have made the brave move to come over, give them some certainty, give them some permanency because they're a brilliant part of Australia's hospitality landscape. Yeah, I mean, at, although at the same time I have to say that it is also fantastic that the situation has um, pushed, you know, businesses such as yours and so many others to look to locals and work out how can you create those more attractive pathways? Like why isn't this an industry that Australian kids turn to first? Yeah, that's true. But it doesn't have to be either or, does it? I mean, we're, yeah. we're a growing industry and I think we need all the help we can get to create pathways of employment for young Australians. 
Um, but at the same time, those young Australians are going to be developed quicker if they have exposure to these people with huge international experience. So I think having both is really critical. Mm, absolutely. So, Paul, you know, get your crystal ball out and just tell us where you think things are going. I think, you know, the next few months with the end of JobKeeper and a lot of people's rent concessions will finish as well. You know, where do you think things are going to go? What are we going to see? Yeah, Danny, I've always been probably more on the positive side of life in that I like to see that I like to see um, the, the, what's going well. And I think the fact that our industry is recovering overall, notwithstanding pockets where things are down, means that we're going to see a, perhaps a stronger bounce back than we would have hoped certainly six months ago. You hear the Treasurer talk about things like another $12 billion worth of tax cuts that are going to come into the economy. You can understand that um, people's savings in many cases have actually increased during COVID because of the government assistance program. And we've also seen that our industry is far less discretionary than people perhaps anticipated. People were desperate to get out and have a beer and and go out for a meal. And I think we're going to see that um, going playing forward, certainly through into 2021 and beyond. What, do you think people are going to have different kinds of experiences? I mean, you mentioned that people are booking more. Are people also spending more when they come? Yeah, the spend per head is certainly higher because people are taking the time to, to make the booking. So they're just not dropping in and they're nursing one pint for four hours at the bar, they're actually making the time and organising friends and meeting in groups. So our group size has increased, our spend per head has increased and I think you have a lot of people who have missed out on catch-ups. I know seem to be going out every night with a mate that you haven't seen for, for 12 <laughs> months and it's just such a wonderful time and there's, there's vibrancy in the city now that we just didn't have six months ago. Yeah, and, and just finally, Paul, like you manage a very large business. What can people extrapolate for their smaller businesses from the kinds of things that you guys are doing? Yeah, Danny, I think um, I'd encourage people to really look closely at their technology and invest in their technology. We're using, obviously, Mr Yum, as I've said, and we use a reservation system called Seven Rooms, which has been um, a brilliant system in able to offer us to offer things like personalisation um, I think having access and understanding of what the government support packages are and being able to access them is really critical because I just worry that some of the smaller businesses um, understandably don't take the time to understand that the gut, what government support is still available to them. And I think that's something I know you do very well through your network, but I think it's something that still needs to be encouraged. And I think the third thing is... Um, be prepared to take on less experienced people and invest in them, knowing that you're going to grow your workforce and the industry workforce. And hopefully with that government support, it will help fund the time and investment that you're making into these people so we can continue to grow our industry. Mm, great. I love that collegial spirit there and, and the optimism. Um, yeah, always so great to have a chat, Paul. Really appreciate your time. And, um, yeah, I'll see you at the Sarah Sands and we can see what the walls will say. Look forward <laughs> to it, Danny. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. 
We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is...